Well, it has been a warm October, to say the least. And with the extended heat and very little rain that we've experienced and very little rain in the short-term forecast as well, that has BC Hydro adjusting its operations to help reduce the impacts on the very communities in BC that are struggling a little bit because of the drought. And joining us to talk a bit more about this is Maura Scott, spokesperson with BC Hydro. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. What kind of an impact does the drought areas or do, do, do the drought areas and the dry conditions, what impact does that have on BC Hydro operations? Yeah, so like you said, it's it's been hot and we've seen very little precipitation and there's not a lot coming in the short-term forecast. So we are seeing near record or record low water levels at some of our smaller facilities here on the Lower Mainland and on Vancouver Island. Um, While we have more than enough power to meet the demand, we have been taking steps at some of our facilities for the past few months in an effort to conserve water um, to ensure that we're protecting the fish downstream. We are really lucky um, to have these reservoirs because they do play an important role in managing difficult conditions like this. Um, They allow us to store water and plan releases, which, like I said, obviously has a good benefit to downstream fish. Uh, Has hydro seen conditions like this before? It's becoming more common, certainly with climate change. We, we The last time we probably saw conditions like this was in 2006. So it is something that we do have experience dealing with. Like we are in the business of, of responding to emergencies like this, whether it's a windstorm or a drought. So we do have plans in place, but um, certainly something that we are seeing more of now than we have seen in the past. And what are some of the areas in the province where hydro or where you're dealing with this the most? Yeah, so right now we're seeing the most significant impacts on our operations at Puntledge um, and in Campbell River on Vancouver Island, as well as Coquitlam and Ruskin and Stave here on the Lower Mainland. Uh, Campbell River, for example, actually broke a 53-year-old record for the month of September with the lowest water inflows. Um, And here in the Lower Mainland, inflows since the beginning of September are actually ranked in the bottom three when we compare them to our historical records. So it's, it's pretty significant. And what will hydro have to do then as far as with with not a lot of rain in the forecast, at least in the short term forecast, until we get back to, I think, what we would describe as more seasonable, uh, seasonal, seasonable weather. Um, What what else does hydro have to do or what else do you anticipate you might have to do? Yeah, so like I said, our reservoirs obviously play an important role in managing this. We can store water, we can plan the releases, which provides protection to the to the downstream fish. We have been taking these proactive steps at many of our South Coast facilities for months now uh, to conserve water. Uh, we actually began holding back water at some of these facilities in about mid-July because we anticipated that these dry conditions could be prolonged and we wanted to make sure that we had the water in place. Um, to help manage water levels on Vancouver Island, we actually reduced the Puntland River flows by about one-third last week. And here on the South Coast, uh, we reduced flows at Coquitlam and Ruskin by about a quarter. Um, I should say, typically we know from our historical records, the rains do arrive by the end of October, and obviously that's what we're hoping for. Um, but we will continue to adapt if we need to, um, to make sure that the water is there to help the salmon spawning. Um, but yeah, like we really are hoping that the, that the rains do show up by the end of October. 
Right. So in the meantime, it's it's balancing, I would imagine, or, or like you said, so at this point, there is adequate water to easily meet the demand for power. But are you also seeing that demand go up as far as more people buying air conditioners or running air conditioners? I mean, it, it wasn't that long ago that, that I think it, it would be rather strange to be running an air conditioner into October. But I think that did happen for a lot of people this year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm one of those people that's running in air conditioner October, especially in the evening with south-facing windows. Um, we definitely are seeing that September is actually kind of an early October t- typically tend to actually be quite a low um, electricity load period for us because you don't have people really using air conditioning anymore and most people haven't turned on their electric heating. Um, so the additional air conditioning load isn't actually showing up as anything super significant other than it's it's odd for us to see that happening at this time of year, certainly. All right. And you mentioned, too, so there is still adequate power. Uh, do you anticipate, could this potentially have any impact on prices for customers? No, our prices are set. It won't have any impact. I mean, I think what this really shows is that we are really fortunate to have this large provincial integrated electricity grid that allows us to move power around when some areas um, are experiencing lower water levels, like we are here on the south coast. Um, We can actually draw power from our larger facilities in the interior and the north, which are seeing um, a bit lower water levels, but there's still plenty of water there, which means that we have more than enough power available ensure that our customers have electricity when they need it. And I know we often talk to you when big storms are on the way and how uh, talk about how hydro is uh, anticipating that and preparing for that and using hydro's meteorologists and, and crews. Is that also something that's being done here as far as looking at when there's going to be rain or what the, the patterns for the weather is like and also trying to navigate that? Oh, absolutely. So, um, you know, we to monitor these factors, we actually manage a network of about 150 automated real-time weather stations that monitor things like climate and snow and surface water that give us a, a really good idea of, of what is happening and what conditions we need to predict for going forward. And I think, too, with climate change, you know, we know that weather can be quite uncertain and outside events can have a big impact on our electricity system, and that's why we continue to be prepared. Um, we have it as a, a system that's designed and operated to perform safely across a wide range of conditions and extreme events. And obviously, our staff are highly trained in doing this. But we're also taking a number of steps going forward, too, to ensure that um, that we're predicting what happens as accurately as possible. So we're continuously working to improve um, our weather and inflow forecasting. Uh, right now, all coastal watersheds can be forecasted down to the hour, which improves our forecast accuracy for these types of extreme events. We're also expanding our hydroclimate monitoring technology. So we have some custom-made solutions um, and we're upgrading, you know, snow, snow survey equipment because that obviously has a big impact on what we do. And then finally, we're, we're making sure that we're investing in our infrastructure as well. So things like spillway gate replacements, um, and those would be the gates that open on the dams that allow uh, water to come out. We're making sure that um, they're as up-to-date as they can be, and this is going to help increase the resiliency of our system to climate change as well. Uh, do you think the system, will it have to change, though, as far as uh, capacity at uh, the reservoirs or that kind of thing as we do move into perhaps having more and more summers like this? I think, um, I think like I said, you know, we are really, really lucky. We have this great uh, 
provincial integrated system that allows us to draw water from different areas. We know actually with climate change that we are expecting to see more water in some areas, and that will actually help to balance out the areas where, you know, we may see less in the future. So there really is a, a great benefit to having this integrated system because it allows us to pull power from all different corners of the province. All right, Maura Scott, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this today. Thank you very much for having me. Well, there seems to be a general theme on the show, and I know Jazz is talking about this later, things that cost more. And it doesn't stop at the restaurant fee we were just talking about. You know, we have talked about credit card fees and the fact that companies can now pass on those fees up to 2.4% to consumers if they choose to. And the list goes on from there. Joining me to talk more about this is Tristan Hopper, who is a National Post columnist and reporter. Tristan, great to chat with you this afternoon. Thanks for having me. You uh, have done uh, some list making and it's not a list I think that maybe a lot of Canadians want to look at but it's good information to know because you have taken a look at the other things or what goes on that list as far as things that are costing us more. Yeah yeah there's a number of things that are just incredibly bafflingly expensive in Canada and uh, this is one thing, any recent immigrant to Canada or, you know, anybody who travels abroad, this is some of the first things they notice. Like, why is it so expensive? And often people don't really have an answer. It's like, well, what are you going to do? Um, I do have an answer. We can get to that later. <laughs> so let's talk about some of the things on the list. And cell phones, like you say, some people might be shocked when they get their first cell phone bill. The rest of us, I think, have come to accept it reluctantly. But that costs a lot more. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, the cell phone I'm speaking to you on, personally, uh, that's, ooh, I don't know, four gigabytes uh, of data a month, uh, unlimited talk text, and that cost me like $60, $70. That's obscene by almost all international standards. Uh, so if I was in France, Germany, most of the United States, Israel, anywhere, um, this plan would cost, what, $20, $30? Um, so, yeah, it's not even close to anywhere else in the world, and that's something... Uh, that's that's not Canadian data. There are uh, analysts who sort of look at mobile rates around the world, and there's one in uh, Finland called Rewheel, and they're surprised every time. Like, why is it so high in Canada? It's not even close to anywhere else. But wait, didn't governments tell us they were going to reduce the cost of our cell phone bills? They possibly did, but it maybe we're just we're still the most expensive in the world, but slightly less expensive than we were before um it's almost a a great government promise because you take something that's hideously expensive and if it's less hideously expensive you're still technically correct right but we're still like you say uh, it's uh, pretty shocking when people see how much we are spending on uh, cell phone bills Uh, you also put uh, and this will be not a surprise to a lot of people air travel we pay a lot for air travel uh yes yeah you'd think uh um, so, so there's been a few studies looking at this, and, and again, this, these are you know foreign uh, entities that are just you know looking at these, and again, they're surprised Canada comes out on top. Um, so there was one from 2016. So that's probably it's probably gone down a bit with lo- some low cost uh, options such as Swoop and Flare. Uh, but yeah, they were looking at numbers where like per hundred kilometers uh, that would cost like a hundred dollars in Canada and an equivalent. Uh, distance flown in the United States would be as low as $25. So, um, I mean, you just need to go to Europe where, um, and, or just speak to an English person, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, I took um, a Ryanair to Spain for $9 the other weekend. These are just inconceivable um, by Canadian standards. 
Yeah, you, and you're right. We're starting to see some lower fares on the low-cost uh, low carriers, but certainly nothing like what we're seeing in some of those other countries. I know it's often uh, difficult or it can start a debate when we talk about health care, but, and you've touched on this in your column, that if you look at other countries with similar health care that have a form of universal health care, and you look at what we're spending in Canada, we spend a lot of money on that. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's one of those things, It's there's a few things like this where, uh, the Americans are worse, um, so we think, well, as long as we're doing better than the Americans, we're fine. And you would assume we're sort of not spending a lot of money on health care, because that's, that's usually what happens when emergency rooms shut down and people are dying in ERs, and et cetera. You think, oh, we're, we're starving them with money. But no, when you look at per capita health care spending, um, for what we get out of the system, it's actually among the highest in the world uh, in Canada. So um, as to why that is, uh, it's just um, what I hear from people in the healthcare field is it's just inefficiency. Too many administrators, uh, too many checks. Just just have a nurse practitioner do that. Why does it have to go through a doctor? There's a whole bunch of these things that have just sort of piled up over the last 50 years uh, that we haven't bothered to change. Uh, possibly because every time someone mentions any kind of reform in the Canadian healthcare system, politicians yell at them that they're you know trying to. You know, literally desecrate Tommy Douglas's grave or something. Uh, and, and they always make that connection, too, or, or suggest that we're trying to make it more like the U.S. system, which uh, the, the counter being no one's trying to make it more like the U.S. system. Why, why on earth would we want that? Maybe make it more like some of the other systems, again, that have universal health care, but have figured out better Yeah, I always ways. remind people there are other countries yeah. uh, aside from the United States. Hundreds of them, really. <laughs> so many of them. Um, one other uh, topic or thing you put on the list, and very timely as well, people in Metro Vancouver uh, we're rejoicing somewhat because gas dropped about 30 cents. It's still around a buck 92 a liter, which is just sad when you think about it, that we're, we're happy about that being the price right now. But we pay a lot for our motor fuel. Yes, and that's, that's kind of different from the other uh, things we've discussed. Most of those are due to just oligopolies. There's like three companies that control something, so they jack up the price. There's no competition. Uh, this one you can, pretty, you can pin pretty squarely on taxes. Um, there's a few things I'm speaking to you from Victoria. So we pay a bit higher just cause there's no refineries and it's a pain in the ass to get fuel here from Washington state or Edmonton. So that sort of adds a consistent premium, but yeah, that's all taxes, um, uh, at the provincial, federal and the municipal level, even before carbon taxes came in. So whenever I write about this, there's a bunch of oh, so carbon taxes driving it up. Even before that came in, we were paying some of the highest gas prices in the entire Western Hemisphere. But this is one where they're still paying more in Norway. They're paying the equivalent of $3 uh, per liter, which considering they're also a major oil power, that's, uh, that's going to be a little frustrating. Mm, that is, uh, yeah, if we compare it to that, maybe we feel a little bit better about the price of gas here. Uh, one other one, uh, milk. And uh, certainly we've talked about supply management before and people go across the border to get dairy products at a much cheaper rate. But we do pay a lot more for that in Canada. Yeah, yeah, and that's entirely because, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the dairy system is controlled under a state-sanctioned cartel um, whose explicit goal is to limit supply in order to drive up the price. So it's doing its job quite well. (laughs) And why do you think it is, or I I don't know if you get into this in the piece, but that we we tend to take it, whether it's cell phone providers, like you said, a lack of competition and other places where the prices could, we can see solutions on how to bring prices down, but we just don't. This is deeply ingrained in the Canadian character. Like, this goes all the way back uh, to the beginning. Uh, I mean, Hudson's Bay Company uh, was basically the king saying, okay, you've got an entire monopoly, no one can compete with you, so 
for hundreds of years, they ran an incredibly inefficient operation because there was no competition. So at each stage of Canadian history, whether it's the railroads, uh, this is kind of the way we do business. And we don't really know how to do it uh, otherwise. All right. Very uh, interesting piece and a reminder of just how much we are paying for things. Tristan, we'll leave it there. But thanks, as always, so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Well, the Canadian Council of the Blind and Fighting Blindness Canada have put out a report card looking at vision health in Canada, and it shows that the progress we would like to see isn't there. In fact, it's been slow as we've been rebounding from the COVID-19 pandemic. It also finds that getting back to pre-pandemic levels when it comes to vision care, it's not happening, mainly because of staff shortages, surgical backlogs, and people not keeping their appointments to have regular eye exams. Well, joining us to talk more about this is Naomi Barber, the Director of Optometry at Specsavers Vancouver. Naomi, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. How important is it as far as as prevention and, and eye health for people to have those regular exams and be paying attention to their eyes? It's so important. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head in terms of your summary from that report. And we know that seeing an eye doctor, an optometrist regularly as part of a routine health check, just like you would the dentist and the physician, is so crucial to detection of early eye disease. And optometrists now have a significant amount of diagnostic technology that really allows a deep look into the structures of the eyes to help to detect these conditions before they start to cause vision problems. So how often should it be a yearly thing or how often should people be getting those exams? Generally what we're recommending is for those 65 and older every year and for children as well, so those up until the age of 19. And in most provinces that is covered uh, through provincial insurance schemes. For adults, it will depend on their situation. An annual exam is ideal um, or as directed by the optometrist um, in terms of eye health needs. And when we talk about staffing shortages, are people having difficulty finding optometrists or is it once you've been perhaps diagnosed with something, that's where we're seeing shortages when it comes to eye surgery? I think it's a combination of both. And of course, there's many, it's multifactorial in terms of of how patients can access and, and often depends also on their location within Canada. But I think what we're seeing is due to the backlog during COVID and obviously the lockdowns, but then the reluctance of patients to return for their regular eye exam. We're seeing patients who haven't been seen in a long time um, out of routine and coming back perhaps really now to see their optometrist, but we're also seeing a resurgence in those who've never had an eye check and and needing to find care. So I think it's a little bit about them finding access, um, but also there there being enough cover um, from optometrists to service the needs of these patients where they need it and when they need it. I would imagine, too, there's a, a, a pretty big correlation with people who have extended health benefits that have eye exams covered and have eye gl- glasses covered that they w- would probably be more likely to go to and uh, get those exams and to, to keep up on that compared to somebody who doesn't. Absolutely, yes. We, we Obviously, through third-party health insurance, that can definitely help to trigger and remind patients of their eligibility and, 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 and I guess, uh, get them in the mentality of, of seeing an optometrist. But what we're also seeing is that those who are covered and eligible um, for these services 
still are not necessarily access, accessing sorry, those services at the rate we would expect. And some of that comes down to awareness um, of the importance, as you were talking about, of an eye exam. Um, and sometimes, I guess, being a little bit in the grey in terms of what they'll be out of pocket for, for the eye exam, and then potentially for glasses if they need them. Right. And is it something, too, that people don't tend to go for or don't think about it, I guess, until something doesn't seem right, whether you've noticed your vision has changed or, or you feel like there's something else that isn't that that just doesn't feel right? And is, and is it too late at that point or or it is better to catch things like that a lot sooner? Absolutely. I think you've really you've hit a point that is just so important to make, which is that the majority of major eye conditions, so things like cataract, glaucoma, macular degeneration and even diabetic-related changes, occur in the eye gradually and without obvious symptoms until they're already at a moderate or advanced stage. And therefore, we can't rely on symptoms to draw us in to see an optometrist, whereas if optometrists are actually able to deal preventatively with this, and talk to patients about their risks, whether it's family history, their current medical condition, um, or anything else that might be putting their vision at risk. Having those conversations early um, is certainly beneficial in terms of stemming these issues. 75% of eye conditions that can eventually cause blindness, if they're picked up early, can actually be treated and managed very effectively with minimal effects to vision. 75% 75% seems like a huge number when, when you listed those conditions, which I think people are familiar with, but to, that you can prevent them or, or, or stop them before they get to that point. That just seems like such a huge percentage. Huge, huge. And I think for the optometrist community and industry, it can be a bit of a point of frustration because ultimately it comes down to awareness and accessibility for these patients. Um, if, if they're seen by an optometrist, the optometrist has everything they need. They're equipped with the skills, the expertise and the knowledge to help to manage these patients um, and also to help to integrate these patients in with other health professionals where that might be required. So, you know, we often will see patients with very early signs of potential blood glucose problems, perhaps relating to diabetes. And we're actually able to then collaborate with a local physician or, or their, their general health practitioner to ensure that they're, they're being seen for these things. Um, so it is really an intrinsic part of holistic care. And so would you say that the, the biggest issues are with staffing shortages and not as many surgeries being completed or is it, is it before that and it's not, not enough people taking uh, the time to get those eye exams and to get those diagno- the, the diagnostics done? I I think that's a good question. I think it's a mixture of all of that. I definitely think, though, that there is an awareness and an accessibility issue that lies around patients thinking about having an eye exam and putting that, I guess, on their to-do list um, or or, uh, making it a habit um, and understanding that uh, a check with an optometrist and an eye exam is more than just for glasses or for contact lenses, it's an eye health screening. Um, So thinking about optometrists like the physicians of the eye, and I think that mindset shift, alongside, of course, larger scale health initiatives in terms of opening access and starting to reduce those backlogs is what's going to see this situation improve. 
All right. Well, good advice and a very timely reminder for people if they have been putting it off and not putting their eye health on the priority list. Naomi, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Well, we are going to talk a little bit now about people who have facial differences and why there are so many barriers for people in that group. Alim Somji is vice chair at About Face, also executive vice president at the Jaffer Group of Companies. Thank you so much for being with us. It's uh, my pleasure, Jill. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I mentioned, so you are the vice chair at About Face. Can you tell us a little bit what is About Face and what do you do? Sure. Uh, About Face is an organization uh, that's uh, responsible nationwide for, for the interests and advocacy for those with facial differences. So it covers a wide range of conditions that uh, that can impact somebody's face. So uh, cleft lip and palate, uh, burns, uh, uh, lymphatic malformation like uh, like the one I have. Um, and, and really the purpose of the organization is to provide support first and foremost to those with facial differences and their families uh, as far as information uh, you know, advocacy but but also you know really peer support from one individual to another given that uh, it, it's not extremely common and that uh, emotional support of, of somebody with a shared context can be very important and do we kind of overlook how people with facial differences how they're treated or I, I suppose how they're treated differently I would say so, and you know, I, I I like to think that it's it's not necessarily because of you know ill feeling or 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 anything like that. It's 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 really a question of you know you know those with facial differences aren't necessarily that common, and uh, for the most part, uh, I would say a large majority of individuals uh, with facial differences are are fully able and capable in in any other realm. So it's not uh, it's not as explicit of a of a of a disability as as you know other things might be, but it also makes it uh, a little bit more challenging to identify you know exactly uh, the types of supports that somebody with a facial difference might need and and the things that the things that they're going to struggle with. And what kind of struggles are there as well? And I know you you just touched on this, but are there are things such as trouble uh, if applying for a job being treated differently, or or there being some stigma attached to that? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I would kind of separate it in almost into two to do different areas. So, you know, I, I, I think there's the, the the kind of explicit difficulties that that individuals have. Um, so, when we're talking, you know, medical medical needs, uh, you know, dental care primarily, but you know, a lot of individuals will have uh, difficulty eating or or drinking or have you know other comorbidities that that affect their day to day living, and then kind of the you know, kind of the the issues under the surface. So those are mental health issues, and and you know the interpersonal societal issues that that those that those that are different have. Um, you know, there's there's no explicit protections for those with facial differences, and in, uh, in really in most places, uh, there's not really an equity, diversity, and inclusion policy at most organizations that you know that talk about facial differences. So if uh, you know if 
if the face of somebody with a facial difference pops up on a on a Zoom link, chances are the individual hiring won't have much experience with those with facial differences, and and that experience can be can be quite jarring and 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 really. You know, take over what is supposed to be an opportunity for two individuals to connect and to, to build a relationship. And what what would be kind of acceptable in that kind of situation or even in an in-person meeting or, or such in that if somebody is there and it's obvious that somebody has had something like, like you said, and you listed off some of the things could, that could happen to create a facial difference or somebody was born with something, uh, is it something that we should acknowledge as far as actually ask somebody about it or, or comment on it? Or is it something that is better is if you... If you it's not not acknowledging it and just kind of carrying on, but also not treating someone differently. You know what I would say, Jill. I, I think it's I think it's extremely difficult to to ignore something, especially in the initial meeting that uh, that can be fairly obvious. And I know, uh, you know, whether I guess whether it's immediately visible or not. You know, for those with facial differences, it's it's something that. You know, I would say uh, many people are self-conscious of. So when we meet somebody for the first time, it, it is, you know, and again, qualifying that everybody's different, but it, it is something that is ideal to be acknowledged, to be discussed, because once it's addressed and out of the way, then then the opportunity to build that connection is there. You know, there's, uh, you know, I like to think we live in a meritocratic society, and, and, and once that one... You know, elephant in the room is is addressed, then uh, you know, two people can really getting down to get down to to making a connection, and then seeing if there's a, a business fit or a, or a personal fit. Right, and I guess too, it's just it would be. Uh, you you could see why people would question should, would you ask somebody hey uh, what happened here or or what what's you know what's asking that question and the answer could either be somebody very happy to talk to you about it but it could also be well it's none of your business and let's continue mm-hmm. on doing what what whatever it else whatever the reason is as to why we're here absolutely you know and 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 I acknowledge it's extremely difficult it's it, it's not easy but you know what I would say, and, and, and certainly I can only speak for myself. Uh, but what I would say is that you know when when something like that is addressed, uh, you know th- there's there's the possibility to talk about it. You give that individual the the opportunity to discuss it, and, and you also make it clear in in many ways that that you see it, you notice it, and it's not going to make an impact in the discussion that uh, in the discussion that you're about to have. And you know, I, I think that building that that honest relationship uh, and, and that transparency, in my mind, probably more often than not, will will help make that individual with the facial difference at ease. And and of course, there are more proactive things that can be done as well. You know, at the outset, in a in a in an EDI policy or, or even in a in a job listing, you know, we we often see that you know such and such company is uh, an open employer willing to hire uh, those with with diverse needs and and backgrounds uh, having facial difference listed there at least is an acknowledgement that that employer understands that this uh, that this exists and is prepared to is prepared to look past it or treat everybody equally 
And uh, you mentioned as well uh, about FACE. Uh, it was founded in 1985. It's the only charity of its kind in the country that, that does this kind of support. Have things changed or have they gotten better since About Face was founded? Uh, I would say the the access to information has become significantly better. I know, uh, say, for example, I was born in 1986, uh, uh, though I tell people I'm younger, <laughs> I, I was uh, I, I was born in 1986, and you know the information that was available to to my family at that time uh, pales into comparison in comparison to what's available for families right now. Uh, but that said, social media also exists right now when when it didn't before, and um, if you had the opportunity to to look at the the abuse Justin Bieber took when when he spoke about his facial difference uh, over the summertime. Um, you know, there's there's definitely still a stigma. There's definitely still a problem, and there's definitely still a significant amount of bullying that goes on. So, you know, I feel we've made we've made steps in understanding and and, and assisting those that are in need uh, to get that information and and to to, to find find others that that can help provide support and certainly the organization has grown in that as well there's lots more we can do uh, but social media and mental health uh, have really taken a hit over the last a number of years and you know unfortunately for for a lot of people there's no easy solution for that uh, Alim, I'm curious, and even if this is only anecdotally, when when the pandemic was kind of at its height, when everybody was wearing a mask and they were mandated in places, did you notice or did you hear that people noticed a difference when masked? Were people treated perhaps differently than they were treated when you could see their facial difference? You know, it's tough to say. You know, I think everybody everybody kind of had a different a different. Uh, a different experience with that. A lot of facial differences are, aren't just uh, just around the areas that are that are covered by masks. I, I think, to be honest, what I think the largest impact was is, you know, for those that have a facial difference, you know, a lot of work is done both, you know, uh, with oneself and and with others and with family supports to be to be confident in having that facial difference, to acknowledge that it's a part of you, to accept that it's a part of your life that won't necessarily change, but it's something that's not insurmountable. Uh, the minute you ask somebody to put a mask on and, and cover that facial difference, in a lot of ways, I think for people, it, it set them back a bit. It, you know, you want people to see your face and acknowledge you for who you are. You want that awareness to be there. Uh, you want to show the world that it's okay, but that basically got paused for two years as as everybody was behind a mask and you know for those that are that are going through that process and 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 I like to think all of us uh, with facial differences are kind of always going through that process uh, it was a challenge and it's you know it's 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 something that you know in many ways we kind of just lost two years like so many things we lost two years of progress and and two years of of, of working to to address a lot of the issues around that and now it's uh, now it's playing catch up all right well Elim, thank you so much for joining us and talking more about about face and about this I appreciate your time today it's my pleasure Jill thank you so much for having me
Well, we certainly have a lot of shows. We have had a lot of conversations about aliens. But what about this scenario? Let's say aliens contact Earth. They make contact. They send a message to humans here on Earth. Would we know how to decode the message? How long would it take us to figure out exactly what was in the message? Well, joining us to talk about that is Dr. Sherry Wells-Jensen, board member of the Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence Organization, also Associate Professor of Linguistics at Green State Bowling University. Thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this today. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. It's one of those things I think we tend to focus so much on the are there aliens, other life forms out there, and not so much on how would things unfold after first contact. What do you think about that? Well, okay, so the question of are we alone is the big question, right? There's, 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 there's what happens after you die, there's where's all the extra socks go in the dryer, and then there's are we out here all alone by ourselves? And to think that we are is kind of terrifying, right? To, are we really just lonely little us, just on this lonely little planet? So I think it really is a huge question. Did anyone else make it through? We're, we're facing all kinds of terrifying uh, crises on our planet right now. We've got global warming. We're not nice to each other. We, there's all these wars. Can we make it? Can we survive? And to know that somebody made it through, that some group of beings really made it, would just be such a relief, wouldn't it? Just such a joyful thing. Yeah, we can do this. We can make it. <laughs> I, I, I guess so. But again, it would come back to finding out a little bit more about them, what their story was. And again, would we even be able to communicate? Yeah, who knows? I mean, <laughs> wait, let me give you a more scholarly answer than, wow, who knows? But I mean, it's essentially, um, maybe. So think about when you try to talk to somebody, you want to be understood. That's one of the principles of basic communication, right? Mostly when I'm not being a jerk to my spouse, I kind of, when I say a thing, I really say it with the intention that I'm being clear and that he will have some chance of knowing what I mean. Um, And so I craft my message that way, right? And so I choose my words. I choose the way I talk based on my understanding of who the other person is. The problem, obviously, is we don't know who the other person is, but we can assume that they're trying to communicate. And that's a big step. Knowing that the other person really wants to talk to you and is trying to be intelligible um, is a really big first step, right, towards figuring out what it is they're saying. But in a, in a scenario like this, and I, and I totally get what you're saying, but say if we're talking about aliens, and again, if they're messaging or, or trying to get this information to Earth, and it's not as if we could pull out our phones and use Google Translate to figure out what it is they're saying, because they would be very, very different, different beings, different language. Do we even have an idea on the, the time it might take? If, if we were to find ourselves in a scenario where we have a message, what kind of timeline might we be looking at to decode it? Well, it's an impossible question, but we'd be in a, in a try everything scenario, right? So we, what we do is we disperse the message as widely as possible and we tell everything, everybody from third graders to astrobiologists to linguists to, you know, the guy who waits on your table. We say, okay, this is what we found. What do you see? What can you tell me? What could be hidden here? Or what, how would you interpret this? And then we just check hypotheses. It's the classic science situation, right? I, I think it might be like this. Let's try it. Oh, wait, no, shoot, that didn't work. Okay, wait, wait, wait. I think it might be like this. So 
I mean, unfortunately, the incredibly disappointing answer to your question is it will either be really fast and easy because the aliens have crafted their message with some knowledge of us or we'll never figure it out. That's a cold, hard possibility <laughs> that we might get a signal and get so excited and then you could just feel the despair washing over us right now. We don't know. It's been 10 years. It's been 20 years. It's been 100 years. We still don't know what the heck they meant. So, and, and we would have to live with that, I imagine. We, we have a signal. So yeah. we're living in a state where, okay, there is something out there. We're just never going to know what it is or, or what it's trying to communicate. Ooh, but, you know, isn't that kind of a human condition, though, really? I mean, we live in a world that we don't understand. We have lives that we don't understand. And it's a, there are so many mysteries. In some ways, that would just join the ranks of all of the beautiful, terrifying mysteries that we already have in our hands right now. Uh, it feels to me like now, like that would be a huge one, but maybe eventually it would just sink back to the level of why are we here? Why are we alive? You know, which we don't think about every day. I don't think. No, that's, that is true. Um, can we take lessons from things that we have done here on Earth, whether it's looking at hieroglyphics, looking at messages that were left as in paintings and symbol form that we didn't know what they meant, but it took a lot of time to figure that out. At least we think we figured it out. At least we think so. That's a really great question. And, uh, and my answer is we should try that, but then also we should, we should try Exactly the opposite of that. Every time we make a hypothesis, every time we assume something, somebody should go, wait, maybe that's not right. Try it a different way. Every time we think, oh, maybe that's a word, if, we, if they're divided into little spaces, right? And someone thinks, that's a word. Let's go with that. And we'll try that. But then someone else has to say, wait, why are we assuming that this has words? We have words. Do they have words? Maybe this isn't words. Maybe this is something completely else. Maybe it's just some artistic representation that they put on for fun. Um, maybe it's just a font. I don't know. So I think the, 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 goal is, the goal is that we use everything we think we know and simultaneously we unthink ourselves and test everything that we think is absurd. Or um, as soon as I think I know something, someone else I trust will have my back and come along and say, no, wait a minute, Sherry, let's don't, what, how, why are you assuming that thing? Don't assume that. Let's see what happens if you try not assuming that. Um, the good news is, though, that maybe because we are a very young civilization, we are just babies here. We are so new. We've only had radio for about 120 years, right? So, but they've been out there longer than us if we get their signal. We know they're older. So maybe they know how to communicate with little baby toddler new civilizations that don't know what they're doing, right? Maybe they'll send us, you know, the equivalent of uh, Goodnight Moon or a board book or something, right? <laughs> something that, something that, that we, they think that they have tested and no work on civilizations like ours. That'd be, that's my hope, honestly. Right, because otherwise, on the other extreme of that would be we could be potentially dealing with things that are a completely different biology, a different brain. So it's not even that we're speaking different languages. It's, it's, there's nothing that would be in common. Right. We, gotta, we have to really assume that most of what we know about Earth language is out the window. I mean... I'm a linguist. This is my job. I love languages, but I'm perfectly willing to pitch the whole linguistics thing out the window and start over uh, if that's what it takes, right? Maybe we'll start with some math. Maybe we can figure out their math and then we can move from there. 
Is it possible, do you think, that uh, as far as signals and, and detecting signals that, that we've, we have received them at this point, we just don't know what to do with them? Um, if you mean, is there a really exciting secret government cover-up? <laughs> no, it's just really not possible. Look, I hang out with astronomers all the time. They're lovely human beings. They're not going to keep that secret. No one's going to keep that secret. I wouldn't keep that secret. If someone told me, I'd be like, okay, no, I swear I won't. I swear I won't tell. Okay, Jason, guess what? Guess what? Guess what? Um, I mean, it would get out, right? So right. the cover-up, I think, is it's a non-event. It's not going to happen. And I'm... And, and we have protocols in place for that. But, but have alien communication signals hit Earth in the 1800s, in the 1700s, a thousand years ago? Heck yeah, we don't know. We have no idea. Could one be hitting us now and we're just not paying attention to that particular part of the sky right this instant? Yep. Could be happening. We could be missing it. All right. Well, let's hope that's not the case if there are there's something that we are meant to pick up on and learn from. Uh, Dr. Wells Jensen, we'll leave it there for today. But great chatting with you about this. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was awful. It was a delight.